Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidle, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylogue is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylogue is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, November 8th, 2020. 2020, and we have President-elect Biden. Wow. This week has lasted six months. Yes. Which is... Seems appropriate considering this year has lasted 10 years, but the election happened. We finally got results after days and days and days too and many days. days. And days. So much TV watching in our house this yeah, week, which as, is not common. As we saw someone tweet or about their little child saying, can we watch something other than the map show tonight? <laughs> the map show. <laughs> the map show was a big hit in our house all week. But anyway, we had an election. We have results. We have a president-elect who's not trump so there's going to be new stories we're super excited to have new stories to cover new, yeah new topics to discuss here on polylog new people who are going to be on the sunday shows new cabinet it's going to be very exciting because we've never covered a transition because we started the summer of president trump's first, first year. year yes yeah, yeah. So we started july 2017 so it'll be new stuff to cover I, i'm just i'm very excited for the newness right. of it all for for polylog. <laughs> yes, for polylog personally, yeah. professionally, you know, just like selfishly. <laughs> so today on polylog, we have a lot to discuss. As promised last week, we're going to talk a little bit about the news coverage we observed this week and this morning about the election, kind of the stances, the takes, and the things that we found notable. And then we're going to look at kind of three components now that the election is over. One, the fact that Biden won, what does that mean? Two, How is Trump taking it or not taking it? And three, what does that mean in terms of governance moving forward? But to begin us off, we're not starting with Highlight Low Light because we've got so much to cover. Let's go straight into the media coverage during election week. And it's so crazy. I want to start with saying I was completely wrong, right? (laughs) I mean, I did think Biden would win and that was correct. But everything else I thought was wrong. Someone, one of our listeners slash good friend of ours sent us an email and said that I said it would take a week. Did I say that? You said it would take a while. I don't know what you said exactly. I don't know. But apparently you were wrong and I was right. And I was just thrilled for the confirmation. Yeah. I mean, truly, I think we both thought, I don't know, maybe we didn't. But I thought when we did the challenge to our listeners to look at media coverage throughout the week, I thought it was going to be a week of talking about who the president-elect was, not a week of figuring out who the president-elect was. I mean, and it's funny because like, I thought it would take a while, but I didn't realize the while would be just the nonstop analysis and yeah. just, it really was election night over a week. It and truly was. And so the conversations that happened this Sunday, 
I were very new. I thought they were right. going to be going on for days, and it was very new. Right. And that's definitely true. And then in terms of moving forward, things we're expecting in terms of how they talk about this new Biden administration, there were, I think I had a lot more expectations for today's shows, but they didn't really have that much time to discuss it because literally it was just announced yesterday. The Sunday morning shows almost felt like a Wednesday, Thursday, cable night weekly. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Instead of the typical, like, week-long analysis. But, I don't know, some did better than others. Yeah, sure. We we will talk about that It just felt very different today compared. I I think we, I thought the Sunday after the election would be, like, big reflection. And it was much more kind of immediate response. So there's a ton, ton, ton to talk about here. Yeah, on today's shows, we saw Chris Coons. He was on this week. And he had just a quick line that kind of reflected how I felt today in terms of how different our emotional state is because the results took so many many days to to be figured out. But I'll remind you that Joe Biden just won a commanding majority across the country in the Electoral College. If we'd seen all of those states come in on one night at the same time, uh, we'd be remarking on how all over the country Um, from states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, to states that Democrats haven't won in decades, like Georgia and Arizona. Joe Biden won 75 million votes in the popular vote. uh, And he's got, I think, a mandate to bring us together and move us forward. I think the American people have chosen unity over division and hope over fear. And that gives me optimism about what we can do in the months ahead. Yeah, the as Chris Coons mentions here, the storyline took so long to tell that people started making conclusions, drawing conclusions on election night as they they expect to do, right? People expect to be able to figure out what the story is, what the headline is from election night. And yet that headline, because the data was incomplete, the headline was sort of wrong, right? The headline was that people thought, they thought, well, Trump is doing way better than expected and Biden isn't doing very well and maybe he's not going to win. And yet as everything gets counted, we discover that Biden didn't only receive, you know, the bare minimum, he got a lot of states that maybe people didn't expect him to get. And Overall, it's looking like the Electoral College result is going to be 306 electoral votes by Joe Biden to, I think it's 214 for President Trump, which is the exact same Electoral College margin that Trump got over Hillary Clinton four years ago. And yet, one thing Chris Coons doesn't state here is that there was a reason why the storyline was the way it was, why it was drawn out over days. And that is because Republicans in these states made it a point of making sure that these early votes in these key states could not be counted, that mail ballots that arrived before Election Day would not be allowed to be counted before Election Day. And that's not true in most of the country. Places like California started counting as soon as they arrived, right? Right. Or, or, or sometimes not even counted, but processed. Processed, yes. Right. Because you have to take them out of the envelope. You have to check the signature. You have to take them out of the envelope. You have to kind of like yes. get them ready, right? And I, that's the piece that some states, specifically Pennsylvania, outright prohibited election offices to do. And and so it took a long time. Um, and we saw a lot of that explanation during the week. I was actually really pleased with all of the explanation about why it's taking so long and that it's really by design by some of these legislatures. And by Republicans in general. But it's so interesting when you think about it because that mail-in ballot ended up being so heavily Democratic because Republicans had caused so much fear and so much 
skepticism among their own voters about the reliability of mail-in ballots. And so their own voters weren't represented in those ballots. And then you got this lopsided result, right? And this is just one way or one example of some type of disruption or barrier in terms of people voting. And I think what stood out to me in watching the coverage this week is that there's so many different ways in which a vote is not just a vote and that there may be arduous attempts to prevent someone from voting or for ha- for them to have that vote count or for s- or a state or a county to count those votes in an efficient way or you know there's just so many things to keep in mind and you think as like a citizen like an election should be easy it should be something you just it's like the civic equivalent of like brushing your teeth it's something you have to do or something we should do it's something we should feel good about doing and we just do it right like this is it's a norm in our civic duty life but to make it so hard, so complicated, so such a process, it really disincentivizes participation and and like meaningful contributions. Well, I mean, as you're mentioning, Naomi, we already have a system via the Electoral College where different votes matter more than others, right? We know that if you're in a swing state, your vote during a presidential election year does matter and has more weight than a vote from a state that is reliably red or a state that is reliably blue. Oh my gosh, yeah. So before I lived in California, I lived in Florida for a few years after college. And I got to go to so many rallies when I lived in Central yes, Florida. Yes, because like, so many. The candidates care about those places. And they go all the time. And and they set the agenda too, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. We talked about this what, a couple weeks ago when we we're talking about climate change, right? We talk about fracking and not about wildfires. But already... There is this, you know, sense that and and reality that some votes count more than others, which doesn't seem really fair at all. And then on top of that, you add the way you vote matters, right? right? Whether you go in in person or whether you drop your uh, vote off at a drop box or whether it arrives via the mail, sometimes late, you know. And then with COVID, it makes it like it would be complicated this year because of COVID. But you put COVID on top of this already complicated election system and it's... It's a mess. And the other thing we noticed is data. And this is such a huge headline and one that, unfortunately, I don't think was talked about much at all on the Sunday shows this week. And that is how much the data failed us. Our expectations were not borne out, right? I mean, if you believed in all the data and you read all the polling and looked at all the analysis as I did before election night and and, and Chuck Todd pushed out this narrative. I mean, if you were listening to his uh, Chuck Toddcast that he had last week before the election with a bunch of data gurus from places like the Cook Political Report, they were estimating that Biden would walk away with 350 electoral college votes, right? And one thing I heard said during the chaos of this election week was that we were expecting a blue wave But what we weren't expecting was a double wave, that the Democrats would come out and vote at historic levels, which they did, but that the Republicans would do the same. And they did they did do that. Right. And that was not expected in the data at all. And so my takeaway from all this and something I wrote down at midnight Pacific time on November 4th, election night, was that essentially 
and here's what I'm just going to read you what I said was the polls need to be banned. The polls were wrong big time once again. They keep promising us that they have corrected for the errors and they keep failing. Polling needs to become the fifth or the sixth most interesting thing that we talk about in the election, not the first or the second. It needs to be demoted from its place of pride in political coverage leading up to elections. That time could be way better spent discussing candidates, issues, platforms, and plans. Ditto the focus on controversies that are the fad of the day. Keep your eye on the issues that voters say matter the most to them. Interrogate the candidate's stances, past achievements, and goals on those items. So much of political news is taken up by either the polls or the fads. And I really believe that. What have I told you all election when you talk about polls? Yeah, I often say, oh, did you see this poll? And you say, I don't look at the polls. I don't look at the polls. And it's not, I really don't look at the polls. And it's for a few reasons. <laughs> One, I just find it's it, it doesn't humanize voters enough for me. And it just kind of groups everyone together like so-and-so thinks this and this is favorables and non-faves. And I'm like, that's just a number that doesn't feel like people to me. And I know polls are people, but it doesn't feel like it to me. And the other thing, it just feels the shelf life of polls in terms of knowledge in my head is like a day. And to keep up with polls when they change so frequently and there's different kinds of polls help me different kinds of, like for me, I find zero value trying to keep up with what the New York Times has, with whatever needle, what they're doing or some other poll. Like they have such a brief shelf life rather than a deep dive into their platform or how they came up with some policy proposal or how they're listening to such and such thought leader on some issue. Like that stays in my head and and anchors down and helps me understand that candidate in a way that a poll in terms of why their poll numbers moved after some debate performance or after some gaffe or whatever. Like in a month, I don't remember and I don't care, right? Whatever that new poll finding was. But understanding kind of some of those examples that you laid out, Brendan, that does stay with me. And that does change my thinking on, on whoever it is. And so that's why I don't listen to polls. That's why I don't watch polls. And like, I have to try so hard to pay attention during data download because it's just, it's not what I'm seeking. Well, and it's so interesting too, because like, despite this like recognition on my part that the polls have failed and the polls are- <laughs> They have really hurt your feelings. They have. <laughs> I am, I mean, I was more outraged on election night by the polls than by anything else because they had completely painted a fake picture of what the hell we were supposed to expect. They just totally messed up and missed it. And I do need to credit, absolutely, CBS News, Face the Nation, and Anthony Salvanto. Last week, I took him to task for (laughs) having a totally different narrative from everyone else that was not based in the data of the polls, where he said very explicitly that his analysis and their battleground tracker said that Trump and his people could show up and his supporters could totally, totally make this competitive and bring him a win. And he was totally, totally right, and I was totally wrong. And all these other people were wrong as well, including, by the way, including Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd is way at the top of that list of who is wrong, but guess what? Chuck Todd is not the top of the list of people who are willing to say so. Take a listen to his data download today. As you can see, the suburban vote and this increase here for Joe Biden, again, Hillary Clinton, plus Gary Johnson gives you this Biden margin here. uh, And it allowed him to win this suburb of Philadelphia by 26 points. 
better than Clinton. Another place where Gary Johnson peeled away those votes. And in raw votes, Biden got about 38,000 more than Clinton. It's not a huge influx, but it was enough. We saw similar vote gains in the suburbs of Detroit as well. Of course, President Trump's voters turned out as woot too, making this race much closer than we thought it would be. And meaning that without these three core groups narrowly increasing, Biden probably would not have clinched 270. So there, there he is talking about, you know, presenting this case, saying that, oh, you know, nothing was really different except that Gary Johnson voters won for Biden this time. But it's like, look, dude, I don't believe what you're saying. All right. Like your data analysis, total, total, total failure. And by the way, what we hear Chuck Todd say here is he says making this much closer than we thought it would be, you know, because Republicans showed up. It's like, no, not than you thought it would be. Then you told us again and again and again in so many ways last week. Where's your credibility? It's on the floor. <laughs> it's in the dirt. Okay, Reddit's going to cool off from his heartbreak from the polls. I just don't believe it and, like, own up to it. Well, I mean, this is literally why you created Polylog is because the shows seem to have not learned anything after the 2016 election. So admission of guilt and public learning is not a strong suit of news organizations, not just the Sunday shows. Well, I will say they certainly did. They covered things differently this year than they did in 2016. Oh, yeah, no, no, of course. I'm not saying they didn't learn, but they don't admit it. They don't. No, that's that's what I'm saying. Public learning. Right, 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 right. Okay, all right. We have other things we wanted to reflect on from this week. Before we leave the data land, though, we have to talk about the heroes, the data heroes of the week. Yes. And that is the map daddies and the chart throbs. Oh, gosh, map daddies. They're such good. Uh, is that is the a, term? Yes. Twitter bequeathed these names to Steve Kornacki and John King, but especially Steve Kornacki. These amazing nicknames. Like, this is why Twitter is amazing. But they just lived in front of maps for like, I don't know, 96 hours or something. Steve Kornacki practically wearing the same outfit for, for like five days telling us how everything was changing in the states of especially Nevada, Florida, well, originally Florida, but Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and of course, Pennsylvania. We need like a whole segment talking about these guys. I mean, oh it's gosh. so impressive what they did. And like what what I take away from it, walking away from it is like, this must be how people felt about Walter Cronkite. You know, like these are our guides through these turbulent <laughs> times. They are always there and they are just this salve on us and on our souls. They were just, John King uh, on election night, his just like steadiness and his just like, here's the data, here's where it is, you know, just like no drama John King, right? You know, they would say no drama Obama. It was no drama John King. Yeah, so, I, I we were constantly, I wanted to see Steve Kornacki and you wanted to watch John King. And they, you know, they both had their, oh, yeah, their, different, both great. their different qualities that were great. I saw like a Twitter or a story where it's just like, Someone's talking about like the emotional highs and lows and like turning on the TV on and off. But they're like, Steve Kordaki was always there, just like steady telling me what's happening. And it's true. Well, I, they I, held I, it down for us. Well, there was even like a Kornacki cam. So even when they were on commercial, they had a camera on him. Someone said like a, like he was, a, you know, was in the little corner and you would see him there at the That's map. so creepy. And it was like someone said he's like the uh, the panda at the zoo. <laughs> You know, like, it's, it's this 24-hour camera. Like, my God. That's horrible. And then, of course, I showed you, Brendan, uh, but our listeners probably saw the one where some 
votes came in in Pennsylvania and he was like on the website on his phone and he like did the math on the fly and then it showed up it got into the CNN system and or MSNBC system and his math was like perfect and it's just like hero these guys are heroes okay but it wouldn't be a conversation about this without a little bit of a little bit of something about the screen right the background oh my god no. i just i have to this is I not on the say, agenda i have to say the CNN map looked like it, it worked pretty well, but there were several times that it froze up, right? They need to work on that program. I don't know <laughs> that these mapping systems were designed to work to the extent that they did, like 24 hours a day, nonstop, right? <laughs> yeah, so they froze a up a few times. You know, I feel like the screen probably was ready to die. But Steve Kornacki in particular, mm-hmm. the man loves to write, okay? He loves to write on the screen. That's kind of a coolish feature from like 2007, People, give the man a whiteboard or give him a screen that means he doesn't have to write on top of different colors, different backgrounds. First of all, it's hard to see. Second of all, your screen does not have a fast enough like refresh rate where it follows his hand. He'll do like a whole number on the screen I know. and nothing will show up for like a second. Like get Apple on this thing. Get somebody on the I, thing well, it's- where it'll like be responsive to where he's writing. It's it's insane. I did see one of our listeners um, on his Twitter. He mentioned that there's some program, or I don't know who which show he was talking about. I have to look it up. But he, my, our our listener is a teacher. And so he's been teaching on like smart boards of various kinds for a long Ah, time. Ah, smart board, that's the term. Right, yeah. And so he said like, clearly these people need to like talk to teachers just to see how like they've been working on smart boards. Because essentially what, and I don't know if it was Kornacki or King, but they essentially put like a little white marker board on top of the screen. Yes, exactly. Like a white square. So then they wrote on top of the white square and whatever they wrote would, would, you know, this isn't talking about the the response rate, but in terms of legibility, it was so much yes, clearer. Legibility is legibility and response rate. Come on, come on, these guys deserve an upgrade. Get <laughs> them an upgrade to this system. Um, and this wasn't is isn't technically data, but we're, as we're talking about voices, Abby Phillip on CNN was so good. She also just lived on the anchor desk for the entire week. First of all, her hair and her makeup. And her skin was flawless at all times. I mean, everybody's was, <laughs> but like Abby Phillip looked perfect and so calm and gave such amazing insight. You know, there was like Jake Tapper being sassy. Oh my and God, he was so sassy. Yeah, he's been sassy for like six months. And then Dana Bash, you know, kind of bringing in comments. And she I, was really good too. She was I good like too. Her. But like, it, Abby Phillip was just like so calming, so centered. I just. Ugh. I can't wait to see where her career goes next. Another piece of the election coverage that is super important to talk about is how journalists, and especially even today, how they talk about the voters. Like, an election happens because of voters. And so remembering that these are people, I think, is really key. And trying to understand these people is very key. A few things stood out to me. Top of mind is how news organizations talk about Latinos. There was a lot, 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 a lot of talk about Latinos in South Florida, specifically that they didn't turn out in the way that the Democrats expected. Their votes didn't turn out. They they turned out. They, they turned out, up. but they didn't vote. They didn't come out in support for Democrats, yes. as, as was anticipated. If you're not familiar with South Florida demographics, there's a huge, obviously, Cuban-American population that's been there for a few decades. There's a lot of Venezuelans and Venezuelan-Americans as well. 
and other kind of economic immigrant and economic refugees from Latin America who have kind of all settled in South America or <laughs> settled in South Florida. And and so there was a lot of conversations are about why isn't Latino support stronger with Democrats? Stacey Abrams had a very powerful response to this question on State of the Union today. Biden's strength among black Americans has been a driving force uh, behind his campaign. President Trump, we should note, did make some inroads among minority communities, particularly with some Latino groups. What role do you think minority voters played in Biden's victory? And where are some areas that Democrats still need to work on? As they have said many times, the Latino community is not a monolith. And so let's be clear, it was the Latino community that delivered Arizona. It's going to be the Latino community that delivers Nevada. Latino voters in Georgia are an essential part of the coalition that will elect Joe Biden here in Georgia. But what we have to understand is that for minority communities, there has to be consistent engagement. Yeah, Stacey Abrams goes on to say that it's not enough to just reach out to minority groups around election years, right before the election. Like, that's not going to cut it at all. And that Democrats need to build sustaining relationships with minority groups, especially Latinos. And that's so important. I mean, Latino staff across news organization is pretty pathetic. And so it's no surprise that their ability to talk about Latino communities is also paltry. Yeah, it's it's. Truly abysmal. Esmeralda Bermudez, she is a writer for the LA Times, and she's been kind of talking a lot about representation in newsrooms and how news organizations talk about Latino groups for a really long time. She's a really, really important voice at the LA Times, which also does not have the greatest kind of represent representation in their own newsroom, even though Los Angeles has millions of Latinos. And anyway, so she had an an amazing Twitter thread. We'll include it in our show notes. But, and I won't read the whole thing, but it's just, the first tweet says, it's laughable that in 2020, this country still needs to be reminded, Sesame Street style, that Latinos are not a monolith and the Latino vote is a mirage. The misconception comes from how little you bother knowing us, how superficially you cover us, and how absent we are in newsrooms. And then she kind of goes off um, in the thread of various components of the Latino experience, including geography, religion, skin color, generational impact, wealth, past politics, and especially their native countries, assimilation levels, immigration, family alliances, feminism. Or misogyny. Misogyny, where they end up kind of settling in the U.S., and then kind of kind of their own faith or or belief in the in America as its own institution. So And that each of these factors is various among many different Latinos. Totally. And I and would that add that changes you know, their experiences and how they might vote. Yeah, and I would add to this and I think I saw it somewhere like other people responding. Education is a huge component of this. Military service, another huge component of this. And so people try to act like Latinos are always going to band together and always try to understand each other. And I mean, Mexican-Americans in L.A. versus Dominicans in New York have vastly different experiences. And I think the news organizations, especially national news organizations, do not get it. And if they're going to talk about this voting block within the parties, like you need to get on it. Yeah, Naomi, I think this is also goes to like another piece of the puzzle that needs to be explored about the outcome of this election. And that is the special attraction of Donald Trump 
to the Republican voter or to those who voted for him this time. I know that people have bemoaned the extent to which large media organizations have descended on particularly like white people in the Midwest and tried to understand the quote unquote Trump voter. But I really do believe that what we have learned is that Donald Trump does motivate a lot of voters to show up to the polls in a way that they haven't been motivated by previous Republican candidates. You know, the way that they haven't been motivated by candidates like John McCain or Mitt Romney or even George W. Bush. And although Donald Trump's political future, as far as we know it at this point, definitely has a pause. I mean, who knows if he'll run again, but these and Trump might, you know, go away in terms of a candidate on the ballot in the future. His voters are going to stay around. Right. And You know, Trump, we know, is a political aberration, but these voters will persist and they will outlast him no matter how long he is president. So we need to understand what are the sources of their interest and loyalty to him. You know, we need real meaningful investigations, not sound bites, not just, you know, polls that look at one particular group of voters. But, you know, what what can science tell us about the motivators? You know, how much of the motivation behind voting for him is cultural? How much of it is about the value of loyalty among these voters? You know, we certainly know that conservatives tend to lean more towards areas of loyalty and group cohesion, respect for authority than progressives do. You know, how much of it is just celebrity, that he is a celebrity who's been around since the 80s and, you know, he's their guy. It's it's exciting. How much of it is personality and his certain way of, of motivating and, and capturing that sort of essence of authenticity that people tend to be attracted to in leaders? How much of it is demonization of the other side, right? We've seen various studies of how right-wing media ha- uses terms like they hate, they hate, Uh, to talk about the other side and how much of it is just the information bubble itself. You know, what I'd like to see a pie chart and how that impacts these voters and how that can help us understand what not only motivates their vote, but motivates their thinking and their considerations of the types of changes they want to see in their lives. Because as Biden said in his speech, which has been lauded across the aisle on, on both sides of the aisle, you know, these voters, although they didn't get what they wanted, are still Americans and still need to have their issues and their voices heard in this country. And I think that the vast motivations for the Trump voter is really important to note because sometimes Democrats in a particular part of the country are only interacting with one type of Trump voter. Right. And so they think, oh, it's only evangelicals who are supporting Trump. Right. Or it's only racists. Or right. It's only, oh, yeah. You know, and their interpretation of the Trump base is so singular and is not representative of the vast variety of, of Trump voters. And I think there's there's a real loss in terms of understanding the breadth of the Trump supporters. Absolutely. I mean, and th- this happens in the media all the time, too. Right. I mean, it just drives me crazy every time I hear, and you heard it all the time, people say, oh, 
you know, 70 million people just voted for racism. 70 million people just voted for fascism. You know, they, 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 they reduce it down to the worst thing, which is exactly what, you know, a lot of Republicans do. So many millions of people voted for socialism. So many millions of people right. voted for, you know, uh, raising taxes. So many million, you know. And it's like, no, people, the way they vote, the reasons they vote, just like you talked about, Naomi, when it comes to the Latino voter, their reasons for voting are very, very, you know, personal and very, very specific to what they want. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, we've talked about for decades the one-issue voter, but that issue might be different, whether you're somebody who is super involved in gun rights and you grew up going out shooting and hunting and that's what you do in your spare time and so you're a gun rights voter or you know you're somebody who believes that guns shouldn't be in schools and you know maybe you're a gun rights voter for a different or you know a gun control voter or maybe you're a voter who believes that women have the right to to choose or maybe you're a voter who believes like a catholic does or a mormon does that you know life is very important right we know there are one issue voters so why do why do we reduce voters for a single candidate to one specific reason or one specific endorsement drives me crazy. And the media reinforces that sometimes. And it's the media's job to break our bubbles, to kind of show this other angle. Yes. And, you know, I'm just reminded when we went to Politicon last year, 2018, I don't know. It was not last year. It was many years ago. It was a year before last. I don't know. Whenever we did. But there was quite quite a lot of Trump supporters there. in terms of attendees. And I remember being so surprised about how many Latinos were like kind of the proud boy Trump supporter. And I remember talking to some people who like couldn't believe it. They just thought like tr- the proud boys were like super racist white young men. And it's like, it's really not. It's truly not. It's like people of all races. And and that's it broke my bubble because I just happened to be in that space where it did. Right. And so it's it's very important that we for both parties kind of show the breadth of, of the experiences. So the last thing in terms of coverage that we saw that was historic and incredible for for so many people, I know definitely for me, was the fact that we now have a vice president elect that is a woman, that is a person of color, that is a black American, someone of South Asian descent. Like, it is just incredible for so many reasons. And, you know, we got an, uh, a note from a listener who talks about how, you know, they're a California voter and how much Kamala Harris has been somebody they've been rooting for, both as uh, the San Francisco County DA, then as a California attorney general, and then and then later when she ran for Senate. And then the fact that she's part of the Biden-Harris ticket was a huge motivating factor to kind of like... And this is Kamala Harris. Right. Yeah. To, it was a huge motivating factor for this listener to kind of not just vote for her, but even to donate money to her campaign or to their campaign as well. And so just a hugely historic moment. And we saw Chris Wallace bring this up with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. We're about to have the first woman in national office elected by all Americans, Vice President Kamala Harris, in a nation that that breaks barriers, sometimes taking longer than I suspect uh, some of us would like. How important is this? It's extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it sent a message to uh, women, to girls across the country, and I think across the world, 
that you can do anything. And her historic uh, role also is the first black woman in this role, the first woman of South Asian descent, and somebody who really carried that weight of history throughout the campaign and did so so well. I, I can't wait to see what her leadership is going to be like as a uh, as a partner in change uh, with Joe Biden and, and as vice president of the United States. It, it is uh, uh, easy to overlook with all of the uh, noise that's going on and, 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 and the excitement around uh, uh, around this election. Uh, I hope we don't overlook just how extraordinary, how historic and how affirming of progress in this country her historic victory is. So I just I love this question. I think it's also a great answer by Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I think it's also amazing, amazing, amazing that this is a man asking this to another man. I want you to think about your news consumption that you've seen all week and think how many times has that happened? How many times is a man talking about talking to another man about a woman doing well? Doesn't happen very often. It often it's like a a female host or a female journalist probes the question, or a male host asks a female candidate, as was the case on State of the Union, in which Jake Tapper asked... Time after time after time. Right. Jake Tapper today asked Simone Sanders, who was with the Biden campaign, and also asked Stacey Abrams what it was like as a woman of color to see this moment. And of course, it's historic. It's major. It's, it's proud. It's all these different things, right? He did not ask Mitt Romney. He did not ask Governor Hogan. You know, and and Chris Wallace also didn't ask Senator Romney and George Stephanopoulos and Margaret Brennan and Chuck Todd did not ask any of their guests what it was like for them to realize this moment. And so, like, I'm so excited for this moment. I'm so proud. But at the same time, like, this cannot just be exciting for women, for people of color. If you are a white man and don't realize that this is a big freaking deal, like, I have a lot of words and you should just sit and pause our show and think about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is just hugely, hugely historic. I, I <laughs> Visually, I don't know why my mind always goes. I think because I went over to a family friend's house as a, as a little kid, who, and I always had those placemats in front of me of the presidents. Yeah, totally. And I think on the back there were some vice presidents or whatever. And I saw it literally this week. Somebody sent a tweet where it was like the emojis of all the vice presidents mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. And it was just like white bald man face yeah just just three or four rows of that and then bam like a brown woman well first it's like a bunch of white face or well yeah for vice presidents yeah for vice presidents absolutely just like all and then bam kamala harris it's it's so dramatic and it's so meaningful and I also saw this incredible meme where it was, uh, you know, how you see on Twitter and, and on social media, it's like how it started, yes, how I, it's going. Did yeah. you see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was like how it started. And there's just this like old sneering sort of terrible portrait of an old John Adams, who was the first vice president. It's like the grumpiest John Adams. Grumpiest John Adams look where he's just like this angry bird angry old bird you know <laughs> yeah 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 and, and then it's like this glowing kamala harris is like the how it's going and it's just it's incredible for this country to have that amount and as we know women represent more voters today than men and that is that is meaningful that is important and i'm reminded of what rbg said when asked about how many women will be enough on the supreme court and her answer was nine. When, the, when, when there nine. are nine. Yeah. Because essentially. Because it's always been fine for there to be nine men. Right. right? Absolutely. It's not radical. It is, it is long overdue. Yeah. Long, long overdue. 
So we've sprinkled in a few clips here, but let's let's transition now to talk in mass about the five Sunday morning political shows that took place today. And as Naomi mentioned earlier, we're going to break this into three sections. First, we're going to talk about Biden's win. Then we're going to talk about Trump's pettiness. That's what it says on our. On <laughs> I know. So these these sub headlines are meant to be internal sometimes. Oh, okay. But whatever. <laughs> then, well, as 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 we. <laughs> Hey, it's not just us. Jake Tapper called Republicans babies today. Oh, yeah, to Governor Hogan. Yes. <laughs> That's true. And then what it means for governance. It's a vast minority of official Republicans who have congratulated President-elect Biden. It's it's like you, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, the newly elected governor of, of Utah. I mean, it, it's we haven't heard from Mitch McConnell. We haven't heard from Kevin McCarthy. I, I mean, it's it's. I have to say, right. just as an American, well, Charlie Baker and Phil Scott, and yeah, <clears throat> okay. But I mean, as to an American me. citizen, it's really <laughs> disappointing. It's you're, you're, you're not you, but your party's leaders are acting like babies. You lost the election. Congratulate the president-elect. So let's begin with Biden's win. So many of the shows highlighted Biden's historic acceptance speech that happened yesterday all throughout their programs in various ways. They both they both highlighted that as well as the celebrations that erupted across the country as kind of a, a, an easy entry into understanding and talking about the win by Joe Biden. But we wanted to start with this interview that took place on State of the Union with Jim Clyburn. He is the majority whip for the Democrats, a representative from South Carolina, the kingmaker who was really present at the start of Biden's historic streak that ultimately led to the win. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that if it were not for you and black voters in South Carolina, I don't know what I would be covering this morning. You gave Biden's campaign new life. And if it were not for you, I don't think he would have gotten the nomination. And I have no idea whether or not I'd be covering a Democratic president-elect and uh, Kamala Harris as vice president-elect, or the re-election of Donald Trump. Do you think, as many observers do, that Joe Biden may have been the only Democrat because of his life story, because of the fact that the American people knew him, so he was relatively immune to the smearing uh, that the president attempted of him, because of his connections to the black community and Barack Obama, because of his connections to white voters uh, and his time growing up in Scranton. Do you think that he might, might have been the only Democrat that could have beaten President Trump, who you would acknowledge is a, is a real political force in the United States? That's what I thought. Uh, I looked at all of the candidates, and I'm friends. I mean, close friends with a lot of them. Um, but I came to the conclusion uh, after that experience in the church, calling a few people, uh, I just came to the conclusion uh, that um, Joe Biden was our best bet. I'm not going to say he's the only one, but I will say I thought he was the best bet uh, to go into the general election because the incumbency is what it is. And it's a real force uh, when you can ma master the levels of government all across the country. You can really uh, get things done. Uh, that um, sometimes cannot be seen with the naked eye. And so with all of this as a backdrop, I just felt the guy who had been vice president to the first African-American 
president in these United States mm -hmm. for eight years and very loyal uh, vice president. And because he spent so much time in South Carolina, Delaware being the state that it is, a part of Brown v. Board of Education, a lot of people recognize that. There's just so much here. And I think Tepper is right that when he says it's not hyperbole to say that without Clyburn, this whole coverage would be completely different. Essentially, what Representative Clyburn is, is making clear is that the Democrats had a shot with Biden and the black community in South Carolina thought that too and believed that Biden was someone they could trust and lean on. And Clyburn himself made that vocal and made that clear and really anointed Biden, to be perfectly frank, right? And saved him after dramatic losses Huge in losses. Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, if, if Clyburn wants to be in the cabinet, like he should be able to chew, like <laughs> whatever <laughs> this man wants, right? Like him and Stacey Abrams, like give them all the, the trophies and awards and, and promotions that they want. But it's, it's very fascinating to just kind of think about Clyburn's tone here and that this was about strategic wins and trust. And so many other of the other candidates wanted this to be bigger and grandiose and kind of, th there was so much kind of emotional dreaming tied to the 2020 election. And I think what Clyburn makes explicit here is like, we needed someone steady who could get this done. And Biden can, and black voters knew that, and black voters are strategic and- and the, trusted him. And trusted him and, and and came through. And we heard that from young black voters that we knew, right? That like Biden was trusted and that it meant a lot that he served the first black president so loyally. And I the other thing I want to highlight here is that Clyburn talks about, yes, there are strategic reasons to have chosen Joe Biden, but there's also his ability to get things done and the sense that as Clyburn says, when you can master the levels of government all across the country, you can really get things done that sometimes cannot be seen with the naked eye. That's a really profound statement about the ability and the knowledge that you can bring as someone with the level of experience Biden has had to this role. And the reality is, I don't know that there's ever been a president with as much experience as Joe Biden because he's the oldest man right. ever elected to and be president. And he was the youngest man to be elected senator. Right, exactly. <laughs> Just literally. So it's it's an incredible, someone mentioned, I think it may have, might have been Dana Bash during the coverage this week, that no living person has spent as much time in the White House as Joe Biden and not been president. Right. Except for maybe some of the first ladies, right? Hillary Clinton was probably among them. Right, that might be true. This discussion about how no other candidate among the Democrats might have been able to beat Trump in this election and that it maybe was only Joe Biden who could have done it. Of course, there's all these counterfactuals you can throw out and people can think about other things. But I do think it's worth noting that during all of this that was going on in Clyburn's decision to endorse Joe Biden and much of the primaries, COVID had not yet happened. Right. And you and I were talking about this, I when think. When COVID hit, Naomi, it was just Bernie. That like... Yes, that like because of the 
burden that COVID put on the campaigns and the fact that people could, these candidates could not, both Trump and Biden, could not campaign the way they would traditionally be able to campaign, the ability for a new face or the face of somebody who wasn't as well-known and as defined as Joe Biden was, to get media attention, to get the attention you need to build trust and knowledge in the electorate, was so limited, so, so limited, that it really was critical to choose a candidate who already had that trust and had that knowledge and was a known entity by the electorate. Right. I mean, I think it goes, name ID is always always, always, always huge in every election. But when you can't have rallies safely, when you can't have all the events you normally would, that name ID is even more important. And that's what I think is different in this election. Especially when you're going against the most famous man in the world in Donald Trump. Right. Another component of these wins that we wanted to discuss was the fact that in the House of Representatives, Democrats actually lost seats. Of course, in 2018, there was... A huge resistance to Trump and lots of swing states went blue and they flipped again in in several seats. I think it's like a half a dozen seats or so in this election. There's been some hand wringing. Yeah, I guess hand wringing maybe, but or, you know, some early analysis of potential reasons for these losses. And a lot of people have been pointing the fingers at the more progressive representatives and the progressive messaging that has been more front and center this election. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic representative from New York, she represents neighborhoods in the Bronx and in Queens. She was on State of the Union, and I thought she gave a fantastic answer debunking this myth. And at the start of this clip, she is responding to Representative Spanberger, who on a conference call like you said, Naomi, pointed the finger at progressives for as the lo- cause for the losses. And that they should really move away from kind of defund the police, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, et cetera. Words like socialism, things like that. Yeah. Yep. I imagine you disagree with that assessment. Why is she wrong? So, you know, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge that so many of acknowledge, first of all, just the, the really hard fight that a lot of our swing district members um, had. And it, it is not to deny that Republicans levied very effective uh, rhetorical attacks against our party. That, I believe, is, is absolutely true. But I think one of the things that's very important is that is to realize that very effective Republican attacks are going to happen every cycle. And so the question is, how do we defend ourselves against that? If you look at some of these, you know, some of the the arguments that are being advanced that defund the police hurt or that arguments about socialism hurt, not a single not a single member of Congress that I'm aware of campaigned on socialism or defunding the police in this general election. And these were largely uh, slogans or they were they they were demands from activist groups that we saw in the largest uprising in American history around police brutality. And so the question that we have is how can we build an, an, a more effective democratic operation that is stronger and more resilient to Republican attacks? And I believe that 
there are many areas that we can point at in, in centralized democratic operations that are extraordinarily weak. Uh, for example, our digital campaigning is very weak. And this is an area where Republicans are actually quite strong. You know, President Trump, he won the 2016 uh, election, as we know, largely on digital organizing and strategy. And I believe that many Republicans were very effective at digital organi organizing and strategy as well, whereas the Democratic Party is still mm -hmm. campaigning largely as though it's 2005. I think this is so, so important and so powerful. And I think Kudos to AOC for kind of putting this messaging front and center so quickly. There was also a really fantastic article in the New York Times this weekend where she talks to Anstead Wesley and kind of really gives her own analysis of, of how weak the Democratic digital campaign infrastructure is and how, at this point, irresponsible it is as well. In the article, she's a much more critical about how poor the digital strategy is for some of these campaigns that lost and that it's incumbent on the party to really beef up and give these competitive seats a winning chance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there definitely was a large undercurrent of conflict between the two different wings, the moderate wing and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on the Sunday shows this week. We saw it in many, many different ways, many different formats, whether it was AOC or whether it was other guests or even panelists really kind of pointing fingers about what happened with the House, what happened with these seats. And I think it's a very nuanced conversation. It should be a nuanced conversation. And I think AOC brought some of that nuance here today. This, of course, isn't the full conversation. There certainly are legitimate issues with socialism. As we talk about the Latinos in South Florida, like that is an important issue to that voting block. And it, fear. Right. Like absolutely. The genuine fear. Of socialist countries that were destructive in their past and their experience. from and it, their And to their families. And to their families. Absolutely. And of course, as we know, it was only, I mean, it was within our lifetimes, Naomi, when the USSR, the United Soviet Socialist Republic, was the chief adversary of the United States. That is not uh, so long ago. And for better or for worse, that word socialism, as we know, is associated with a lot of negativity, as well as it is to this day associated among progressives and others with positivity as it's under the banner of democratic socialism as practiced in some European countries. We need to, though, you know, move on and we need to highlight something else that was brought up in the same breath as the win by Joe Biden. And that is the coalition of voters that were a part of the blue wall, the so-called blue wall of Midwestern states. And the conversation around this blue wall or the rebuilding of the blue wall or, or whatever you want to call it of the states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania left something to be desired, particularly on face the nation. Perhaps some, but it, the president-elect just narrowly held together that so-called blue wall of Midwestern states. I mean, if you look at the breakdown in, in Wisconsin, for example, much of his victory was delivered by you know, large margins in, in cities, areas like Milwaukee. If you look out at the more rural areas, uh, only two of the 23 counties that voted for President Trump in 2016 and before that, President Obama actually flipped. So that divide still exists 
Why do you think it seems to be deepening, that divide between rural and urban America? Well, uh, we control the House. Democrats control the House. The question is about the Senate. And senators are elected statewide. And so when you look at us winning statewide in places like uh, Georgia, I think that that is a wake-up call to many senators that it's a different day. And, uh, you know, statesmen, uh, they look at the next generation. Politicians, they look at the next election. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that um, the battlefield will be a lot different for the Senate in two years, I think that all of that is leverage for us to achieve our agenda. But again, we want to work with both sides because at the end of the day, it's the American people we're trying to help. Now, this question here from Margaret Brennan, asking for an explanation about the rural and urban divide, I did not understand the point of it. There has been a political difference between rural communities and urban communities literally since the founding of America. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Yeah, that is true. Why Margaret Brennan suddenly thought in 2020 Joe Biden would be able to solve it. Like, I, like it's just a waste of airtime. Like, if you're going to... I think there's plenty of criticisms you can make about the Democratic platform or bringing people together or bipartisan policies, a bipartisan cabinet, whatever. But like framing it within rural versus urban, like kind of a major waste of time. Well, I mean, if you look at her question, I think what she's saying is that there were 23 counties that voted for President Obama, but then in 2016 flipped over to President Trump and that Biden didn't earn these counties back. He won more urban counties in the state of Wisconsin. And what? why is that different? How, did the, how is that? Well, my first response is I think looking things through the county lens is also a waste of time. I yeah. can kind of go on a whole spiel of that. But counties are measured and defined vastly differently across the states. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, it and is- so it's... Our, our county is literally almost the state of New Jersey. So, like, <laughs> I don't give a shit about what a few counties are doing in Wisconsin. I don't know. But that's, like, another fight for another day. But Well, it, it just, it kind of makes me think of, like, imagine you're somebody, you know, when you go to, like, a national park and there's somebody at the booth and uh, you have to buy your national park pass or whatever and there's all these cars driving in. And I, I'm almost thinking, like, you know, you 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 succeeded in getting more people to come to the national park and then your boss shows up and they're like yeah but you're not getting enough people in pickup trucks trucks you're mostly getting a lot of people in minivans coming through here and it's like it doesn't matter what vehicle they're in <laughs> if there are more people then there are more people and we've got more people coming here i thought that's what we wanted right like it doesn't matter what counties the people are in if you win the state. And I think that's what Cedric Richmond's trying to say here. Like, we have the House already, and if we need to take the Senate, that's a statewide race, so it doesn't matter what vehicle the people show up in, right? right? It doesn't matter if they're in cities or rural counties. If we get them, we get them. So it's it's about the voters, not the land. And a lot of people say that, right? Like, think about voters and people, not, not about land. That's especially important if we're assuming, like, Who's a renter? Who lives in different kinds of homes? Who who lives in different kinds of communities? I don't know. I just have issues with courting the rural vote and assuming that like the American dream is, you know, a family on vast amounts of land working the soil. It's like actually 
A multi-generational family in a small apartment working in a factory is also working the American dream. So, <sighs> well, it's uh, just, you know, the problem is these elections blind people to the nuance, right? And they just yeah. want to, you know, it, it reminds me of when President Trump will say something about Democrat-run cities, when there's over a million Republicans who live in Los Angeles alone. And it's like, you can't just blot those people out just because they're in a they're in one area versus another. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like it started during Obama, right? Like of real Americans. It's like, the hell is that? Like the the that if you play into the so-called American dream of the last like 50, 60 years, then like that's real. And the dreams of other people who live here are not real. Yeah, they're like, that real. That is supreme trash theory. It's it's Joe the plumber. Remember that? Oh my god. I forgot about that. I can't believe you brought that back in my head. <laughs> There's a way to talk about who the party, whether that's Democratic Party or the Republican parties, who they are courting, how they are courting them, how are th- how are they listening to those voters, as opposed to just framing it in this way that Margaret Brennan does. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about Trump taking this loss so gracefully. Yeah, I mean his concession speech. It Beautiful. was it was, it was moving. So, yeah, it was moving. I mean. Hardly anyone talked about Biden's. It's all about Trump and how moving of a speech he delivered. No one thought he could do it. Nobody thought he could do it. Nobody could do it. Nobody could give a speech like that. No other president ever. He literally did not. (laughs) So, I mean, I think we're kind of like used to sore loser Trump that it's not surprising he hasn't conceded. It's not surprising that he never gave a concession speech. But in general, it is unheard of for a president who has lost, a candidate who has lost to be this petty. But that's where we are. Yeah, Naomi, I mean, Mitt Romney said as much that this is this is who he is, right? We, we can't expect, we can't be surprised by his behavior, even if we're surprised that a president is doing it. I mean, that's kind of the definition of, of Trump. You know, even, even if people around him are trying to push him in the right direction, as we heard some reporting on this week from Jonathan Carl, that his own family is trying to push him to be a little more graceful, including his wife. But it's, it's, not, it's, not, really, it's not really getting there right now. It's not, it's not breaking through to him. Yeah. So there was a great question on Fox News Sunday to Senator Mitt Romney about the moment when he decided to concede in 2012 to Barack Obama. I, I want to pick up on something that you just said, because you have been in the same situation back in 2012 that President Trump is in now. Uh, the networks called Barack Obama the winner uh, in the 2012 election. You had a team of lawyers ready to fly out to various states. There are always irregularities in vote counting. You waited 90 minutes, and then you called President Obama and conceded uh, victory to him. I guess two questions. One, why did you decide to go that course? And if you were in the situation now that Donald Trump is in with widening uh, gaps in Pennsylvania and Nevada uh, and Georgia, would you concede? Well, first of all, President Trump is a different person than I am. Uh, Every individual is different. Uh, My setting was different. Uh, We looked at the the vote totals. Uh, I met with my legal counsel. We talked about irregularities. It did not strike me that there was a realistic uh, uh, possibility of overturning uh, the, uh, the result that had been called by the networks. 
And, and frankly, uh, there's something more important than myself and whether I win or lose an election, and that is the cause of democracy and freedom. And, uh, and at some point, truth, freedom, and democracy have to ascend, uh, and you step aside. And, and I, I'm convinced that that, that that will happen in this case as well, if, if and when the every avenue is exhausted for the president. But, but time will tell in that regard. But let me tell you this as well. I, I think the, the assessment that somehow that, uh, that conservatism loss is, is, uh, is not accurate. Uh, Republicans picked up state houses. Republicans picked up seats in Congress. I think we're going to keep the Senate as well. Conservative principles are still on the ascendancy in this country. So this is a fantastic question by Chris Wallace, kind of asking Mitt Romney to explain why he felt comfortable conceding to Barack Obama in 2012, kind of what was that circumstance and why he felt confident in that choice. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to get an inside look here and to see that he did say that, you know, he looked at voter irregularities, he talked to lawyers, he tried to understand what's going on uh, with the vote, because on any election night, these are going to be projections, right? Not all the votes are counted on election night. That was true back in 2012 when it was Romney's election night, and it's true this year. That's actually a really good insight, but it's also what he says here, you know, his recognition that the, the country... It was important to think about the country as well. And I think that was something that faced other candidates in the past, candidates like Al Gore, who, you know, certainly fought for, for as long as he did, but could have continued to fight, but, but decided not to. And uh, Hillary Clinton, who could have fought the results of the 2016 election and didn't. The other thing that I was reminded of, or, or I thought of today for the first time, is that Mitt Romney, if he had won in 2012, and he served two terms, which is the most common thing for a president in in the modern era, he would have just been finishing his term now. I mean, he would have been the president during the COVID crisis, which is just amazing to think because back when he ran in 2012 just seems so long ago now. And yet he could have potentially still been president at this time. The other thing about this question that I thought was really important to know is just what a pro Romney is at this. I was really impressed, not just by the maturity of this response, but also the very sophisticated pivot to the conservative talking points about how Republicans didn't completely lose on Tuesday. And he doesn't say it in a gloating manner, but more like this is my job and this these are the values I bring and this is what I was elected for and this is what I still have to fight for. It's just with a different president. And so I just thought it was kind of a really, really polished answer that was quite impressive. As, as I just mentioned earlier, I am not surprised that Donald Trump hasn't conceded. But what has surprised me is just how important the concession is. And like, I, I thought it was just like good manners and it's helpful. But one thing that I learned in the coverage this week, something that Dana Bash said and Romney reinforced in this interview with Chris Wallace, is that the whole world watches how we play this game called democracy. And there was a story I saw, I don't know, on one of the many days we were watching the news where Dana Bash said that when John McCain, after 2008, he would kind of be traveling the world and, you know, meeting different leaders and leaders could recite to him his own concession speech that he gave in 2008 because it was such a model for a healthy democracy to be that gracious, to kind of be able to look forward and kind of 
remain productive. I thought that was just so, so powerful. And hearing Romney kind of reinforce that, uh, that kind of same notion as well, that there's a cause greater than a candidate, that there's the cause of democracy overall. I thought that was just, it's really important that it's reminded. It's not, a lot of the talks of Donald Trump not conceding has been around his pettiness about the fact that he's a sore loser, the fact that it'll be hard for Joe Biden to to run and kind of build his transition team. And all that stuff is true, but there's even more. And that's that it justifies authoritarian regimes across the world to ignore the norms of a healthy democracy. Yeah, there's a huge impact to that. And Mitt Romney mentions it here. He mentions it on Three other of the interviews that he did today. all over the shows today. He was all over the shows, and clearly there was a reason for that. He is one of only two senators who are actively acknowledging that Biden is president-elect. But there were some other senators on the Sunday shows. And Senator Roy Blunt, for instance, the Republican senator from the state of Missouri, was on this week. And he was confronted with the very blunt question about why he won't acknowledge Joe Biden won this election. You're a former Secretary of State. I've spoken with Secretary of State's Democrat and Republican state officials over the last several days. Mm -hmm. They've said they've seen no widespread evidence of any kind of fraud at all. Joe Biden has won this election. Why can't you acknowledge it? Well, what I said on Friday and what Chris Christie said just a few minutes ago on this show is it's time for the president's lawyers to present the facts and then it's time for those facts to speak for themselves. It's going to be much easier to work toward the kind of transition we want, uh, look at the inauguration, which I'm going to have the honor of chairing again this time and bringing the country together if everybody feels like we went through a process and everybody was heard. Every legal vote was counted. Every illegal vote was challenged and not counted. Uh, we come to a conclusion. I think that happens pretty quickly. Almost every state within seven to 10 days go of the election goes through that entire canvas. There are always some changes. Seems unlikely that any changes could be big enough uh, to, uh, to make a difference, but this is a close election and we need to acknowledge that. So here you see some of the thinking behind senators like Senator Blunt when they are not acknowledging Biden's win, giving President Trump and his followers the time and the space to kind of process this, to fight it to the extent that they think that they can, and then, as he describes it, very quickly move on and seem like they've had their day in court, as it were, and can can accept the results of the election. And this this last bit that he mentions here is something that I wish had been talked about in a little more detail, and that is what these challenges or recounts, exactly what they are, you know, like what the margins were that President-elect Biden won by in these states, what the thresholds were for a recount in the states, what the rules are surrounding it, and then also like what the averages are in terms of differences in a recount when they are conducted in states. And we learned this week that generally a recount might shift, you know, the, the ultimate vote tally by a few hundreds of votes. And Biden's margins in these states is in the tens of thousands, if not for Pennsylvania, they're projecting the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And speaking of you know, voter integrity, there was a really 
quite explosive moment that took place on this week. George Stephanopoulos hosted, and he was talking to the governor of South Dakota, Governor Christy Nome, and she seemed, wow, she seemed very skeptical of the Democratic wins and really reinforced some of the Trump messaging around voter fraud. We gave Al Gore 37 days to run the process before we decided who was going to be president. Why would we not afford the 70 Point six million Americans that voted for President Trump the Governor, same consideration. If Joe Governor Biden, Nome. if Joe Biden really wants to unify this country, he would wait and make sure that we can prove we had a fair election. Governor Nome, Al Gore was behind by about five hundred votes in mm-hmm. one state, Florida. Joe Biden is ahead in all and the look close at how states many more by multiple parts. We ten, have today. Ten, 10,000 votes in Georgia, 27,000 votes in Nevada, almost 20,000 votes in Arizona, more than 30,000 votes in Pennsylvania. That is not close. That is not within the margin that, that elections are usually turned around on. And many, many more states are in play this time around. Yeah, Governor Nome was really on the show advocating for the Trump position here, right? She was really, really out there to represent where Trump is coming from, where his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, are, is coming from, and this, this argument that there probably is fraud, or, or there are questions out there. I mean, she was, and we didn't want to highlight all of the misinformation she was spewing, but she was talking about dead people on voter rolls and other things that are, are, are really there to sow division, sow disinformation in the, in the integrity of the election. But it's really fascinating, you know, to look at these three voices that we just played, right? Mitt Romney, who says, I accept the results of this election. Joe Biden will be the next president. To Senator Roy Blunt, who says, look, I'm going to give Trump time to process this. And and then we're going to move on. And I'm going to help plan the party for the inauguration, right? And then people like Governor Nome who say, I'm all in on Trump's side of things. It's quite the bouquet of shades of color, right, in the in the Republican world of dealing with this unprecedented defiance of President Trump in this instance, because it is unprecedented. Yes, there was the disputed period between the election of 2000 and things being resolved in December of 2000, 37 days after that election. But those states were not called, right? Like the media wasn't ready to call those states. The decision desks hadn't done the analyses and said, look, President Bush won. Or if they had, they they immediately retracted and said, look, this, this isn't close. So this is an unprecedented period. And President Trump is, you know, pushing the envelope here. So we wanted to get to this next section, our last section in reviewing today's shows. And that's just what this win by President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris in terms of governance, where they're going to have to build out a transition team and figure out what to do next. There was a really interesting little summary at the start of Meet the Press that kind of encompassed a broader view of to some of the early priorities of the Biden administration. President-elect Biden aiming to show action on a key campaign promise, winning the fight against COVID. We are told he is going to officially launch his transition tomorrow and also announce a task force that will be led by three co-chairs, including former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He will also, I'm told, 
tell we're told that on day one, Biden will sign a slew of executive orders aimed at reversing key parts of the Trump agenda, among them rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, reversing the withdrawal from the World Health Organization, repealing the ban on immigration from Muslim majority countries and also reinstating DACA. Now, it is notable that several of those are focused on restoring the United States relationship to its traditional allies on the world stage. So, Chuck, the work begins immediately. Yeah, quite a list there of priorities, but also looking forwards to what we might expect to see during this transition itself. The focus on operationalizing the COVID relief plan or the COVID response that the Biden team has put together and turning it into, you know, an actual group of people, an actual strategy that's going to change things. And there was an interesting discussion on Face the Nation as well with Scott Gottlieb about what that might look like. I do want to add one interesting thing that we learned this week through an interview that Senator Chuck Schumer had about some of the priorities of the Biden administration, which includes the possibility that both Schumer and Warren have been working on of Joe Biden, through executive action, signing an order that would eliminate $50,000 of student debt from every American, up to $50,000 of student debt, which would be seismic in its impact on America's economy and on young people, as well as kind of older millennials, even old people, right? I mean, that's something we learned also this election was that there's so many people over the age of 50 who have large amounts of student debt. Career transitions, yep. Absolutely. So that that could be a huge impact. And if that could be done without legislation, that would be that would be massive. So lots of interesting things to look look for in the future. But of course, also in the future, we need to recognize that there's going to be opposition from Republicans. And I did see a number of people surprised that Mitt Romney, who has for the past few years been at least a rhetorical opposition to President Trump, might be a part of that policy opposition. Take a listen to what he was saying on Fox News Sunday this week. What is your attitude towards working with President Biden, how much deference do you feel that you will owe him in terms of his choosing the people in his cabinet and some of his policies, such as a public option uh, for Obamacare or raising taxes or the environment? Uh, and I don't think you expect elected officials to provide deference to others based upon their point of view, because we all got elected and we all have a responsibility. But there are places we'll be able to work together. Uh, look, health care is a mess right now. Prescription drugs are too expensive. Surprise building shouldn't be going on. We can make some changes there. Obamacare is not working. We're going to have to make some changes there. Uh, if there are flaws in the tax code that let billionaires pay no taxes, I think we have to look at that as well. Uh, the, the, the president-elect uh, Biden has spoken about increasing the child tax credit. That's something I've been fighting for with Senator Mike Bennett as well. Uh, so I, I think you're going to see uh, that there are a number of places that we have common ground. But, uh, but look, uh, conservatives like myself are going to continue to fight for conservative principles. And those things are not uh, in the rearview mirror. Uh, President-elect Biden has an agenda. We'll work with him on that agenda. With regards to his cabinet, look, I right. believe the cabinet appointments, the president ought to be able to appoint his own cabinet unless they're really out to lunch. I think this reminder of what normal bipartisan politics looks like, feels like, is important for us to hear. I think people thought 
I don't know. I don't know what people think. But it seemed to me as if people thought Trump would leave and then suddenly everything would be Democratic everything. And like, that's not how things are. And Republicans have their own mandate from their own constituents to push conservative values. And, you know, I think Romney does it in the most polite way, the most palatable way that I think hopefully Democrats will hear. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing I wish I would have seen in in the conversations with Romney, because Romney does sound like he's willing to work and, and you know, work across the aisle with President, uh, it will be a President Biden on a number of issues and also provide some deference at least, least to his ability to select his own cabinet. But I wish there were questions around leadership in the Senate and whether leadership was going to approach this in the same way a Senator Romney approaches it. Because Senator Romney sounds perfectly reasonable in a world where Republicans and Democrats get along on some things and, and don't get along on other things and have to work their way through it to the betterment of the American people. That's how I think we all would like to see it. But it's certainly not how people like Mitch McConnell have operated in the past, who, you know, Mitch McConnell, when President Obama was elected, said that his number one priority was to deprive President Obama of a second term. And that didn't work, right? (laughs) He wanted to do that through a a Mitt Romney, (laughs) right? Romney was going to be the one that was going to take that second term away, but, but that didn't happen. So I really wish there was more more recognition of that, because Romney certainly, as a senator, And a Republican senator sounds like he's speaking for all, but he really is just speaking for himself here. Although we do presume that he probably got the the green light or the encouragement or the request from Republican leadership to go on the Sunday shows today because he really was on so many shows and kind of speaking on behalf of, I don't know, the calm Republican (laughs) cohort or something and trying to kind of soothe and calm worries that the Republican parties are going to do their job and they're not going to... I don't know, playing that very fine line of, you know, do their part in governance, but also placate Trump at least a little bit in terms of letting him think that it's okay to explore all your legal options. In an even shorter term, there was a really interesting comment from Democratic governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. And he talked about, now he is the new head of the National Governors Association, formerly Governor Republican Governor Hogan of Maryland. And Governor Cuomo talked about how he believes that things will start to change nationwide even before Biden is sworn in as president. And I think you'll see, this year I'm chairman of the National Governors Association, I think you'll see Republican governors who were cowered by Trump's philosophy to deny COVID, don't take tests, because if you take tests, then you'll find cases. Uh, The scientists couldn't speak up. His own health officials were muzzled. Uh, I think think that day is over. So this is very interesting to see this statement and this expectation that governors around the country are going to start acting differently because they know someone else is uh, is going to be taking the job. I mean, this is a common thing that happens when a president is in a lame duck session. You know, that they, they kind of lose a lot of their the power of their bully pulpit, the power that is vested in them that people give grant to them because if a governor has a longer term than President Trump's term, they're like, whatever, I can just wait till you're out of there, buddy. I, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to pay attention to you. It, it's actually a very common thing. And 
we learned from reporting that came out today that President-elect Biden plans to reach out to governors across the country and try to impress upon them the importance of putting through, you know, mask mandates or ordinances. And if governors refuse to do that, he's going to reach out to the leaders of various cities in those states to try to make a positive impact to reduce COVID cases during this very dangerous winter period that we're entering now. But in terms of governance, the most important component has yet to be determined, and that is who is going to control or have majority in the Senate. Now, this is all going down to two runoff elections in Georgia, and we were annoyed. I don't know. We noticed that several of the shows kind of already made the assumption that the those races would go to the Republican candidates. And while they are probably favored, Stacey Abrams, if she has demonstrated anything with her colleagues across the state of Georgia, are going to give those Republicans a run for their money and make it an extremely competitive race. She was on State of the Union and spoke with Jake Tapper and kind of gave a very comprehensive overview as to why the Democrats have a shot and what they're going to do about it. Um, It appears likely that both Senate races in Georgia are going to head to this January runoff and could decide control of the Senate, as you just noted. Voter turnout typically drops in runoff elections. um, And but this will also be an election without Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Um, Do you think Democrats have a chance to win both seats? Absolutely. I want to push back against this anachronistic notion that we can't win in Georgia. In years past, when we've had runoff elections, whether it was the 92 election or the 2008 election, in both of those elections, we elected Democratic presidents. We elected Democratic presidents who had strong support in the U.S. Senate. This is the first time that we will have three things happen. One, we've got John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock at the top of these tickets, working together to make certain that voters come back. Number two, we will have the investment and the resources that have never followed our runoffs in Georgia for Democrats. And number three, this is going to be the determining factor of whether we have access to health care and access to justice in the United States. Those are two issues that will make certain that people turn out. We know this is going to be a hard fight. It's going to be a competitive fight. This was such a get to have Stacey Abrams on State of the Union because she is just as powerful as Jim Clyburn in her impact on this race. And this is such an important case for her to make on the Sunday shows because, as you mentioned, Naomi, a lot of the shows and a lot of people think that it's a foregone conclusion that Republicans will take control, will win. And even though Democrats and even though everyone expected Democrats to do better than they did, it doesn't mean that they've lost the chance, right? We know that they that the chance still exists and there's going to be a lot of focus here. And Stacey Abrams brings a lot of confidence to the argument that this is going to be a very competitive race. If she could actually win this for the Democrats, oh my God, her power in the Democratic Party would be unbelievable. I mean, she already has so much influence and is And it's completely changing the perspective of Democrats about what is possible in the South and what kind of candidates are competitive and what kind of strategies are will lead to success. I mean, it's just it is really quite impressive. And more than I mean, not more than anything, but in addition to all of that is I just love hearing her in interviews, how confident, how assured she is, how forward seeking she is, how she can describe learnings and important lessons without being bitter or angry or like there's just such she's a fantastic leader and 
Georgia is so lucky to have her. And, you know, I'm just kind of thinking not just of this year, not even just of two years, but what does it mean to have a leader like that, right? A leader who is black, is woman, is single, is confident, is innovative. I mean, it's just, it'll have such a profound effect in terms of what we expect from our very visible leaders. All right, Naomi. Well, that was uh, a, a, a massive episode for us. It was kind of like this State of the Union episode, which we should mention was a special episode that was one hour without commercials. I feel like this is kind of our equivalent to that. But there was a lot to talk about, a lot of excitement to look forward to in the political story and the storyline to come. And uh, that takes us to show rankings. And for me, there's a lot of very clear divides here. State of the Union, right at the top of the list for me. I think that's number one this week. Oh, I think I'd say Fox News Sunday well, is Well, I, I think one. Fox News is right up there with them. But think about the booking State of the Union had. Yeah, that's true. Okay, one State of the Union, two Fox News Sunday. Three, I was thinking this week. Yep, I could totally agree. This week was a very strong episode. George Stephanopoulos had strong questions, even though it was kind of odd that they started off with the panel. Yeah. It was, it was still a good show. Meet the Press. You got to own up to some of your data failures there. You really do. And and I just, I don't know. It, it wasn't the best episode. The data failures weren't the part that kind of frustrated me as much as they frustrated you. But I think, I, I don't think there were kind of as many important moments in the interviews that ha- left me thinking that I did see on Fox News Sunday, that I did get on State of the Union. You know, I feel like interviews, especially after big weeks, need to kind of hit me in the gut with something that kind of stays with me and I didn't get as many on Meet the Press. It also ended in that tone-deaf way, counting down to the next presidential election. Oh, thank you. Come on, people. Read the room. America needs a break for a little bit. Yeah. So four, Meet the Press, and which means five, Face the Nation. Absolute. It's absolute five. Margaret Brennan's whole tone and direction, totally off this week. All the analysis and criticism of the Democratic Party and what they were able to accomplish this week was centered from a very kind of centrist point of view, very skeptical of progressives. And I don't know, this is an election. Like, let's see who did well and what people struggle with across the board, not just from kind of one point of view. I just feel like, the, yeah, and the, the whole take on the on what happened, they treated the news of this week as more like a loss by Democrats than an important surge by Republicans that defied the polls, defied the odds. Because like I mentioned at the start, it really was like a double wave election. Democrats showed up in unprecedented numbers, but so did Republicans. And so to say this is a loss by Democrats because Republicans showed up is kind of missing the story in a really big way. Absolutely. But Anthony Salvanto, he gets my thumbs up. He wasn't (laughs) on the show, but he... He, he he gets an honorary number one. He gets one. a nap today is what yes. he gets. <laughs> um, just one quick other note, you know, as we move forward with Polylog under a new administration soon, you know, we'll be exploring, I don't know, a, a revamping or kind of the, the structure of our show and kind of trying to get new ideas. We did get some listener suggestions as to what they like, what they would think 
could be some interesting, helpful changes. So if you have any, like I think just there's going to be new people moving in in the White House. There might be some new stuff on the show. I don't know. Just send us your thoughts if you have any suggestions about some parts of our show that you find really valuable or kind of stay with you, good or bad. I think that's really helpful for us to kind of think about in terms of doing doing polylog under a new administration. Absolutely. We would really, really love to get your thoughts, your ideas, because the show is for you, right? Absolutely. So Naomi, what is our dialogue challenge this week? I mean, there's so much to talk about, right? I mean, I think because there's only uh, presidential elections are only every four years, what we absorb in the news right now in the lot, you know, between now and inauguration, I think, is something we don't see very often. And so I would just really talk to a friend, a family member about something from election week that you're still thinking about that maybe is still continuing. Maybe it's something around Kamala Harris. Maybe it's around the Georgia races. Just something. What's what's the news coverage that kind of has has penetrated your brain and, and talk about it with somebody? Yeah, kind of like piggybacking on that. For me, I guess I would like to encourage people to, similar to what you're saying, Find some storyline here that you that you're excited about. You know, find something that you're like, I can't wait for this. And it could be something, you know, if you're if you're someone who's excited by the win by Joe Biden, maybe because you didn't like Trump, find out something about Joe Biden that you like or something about his his agenda that you're excited about, you know, or if you're somebody who voted for Donald Trump. Find out something that you're excited that he might be able to get done in this lame duck period that he couldn't get done before. You know, I mean, there's there's always something. Or if you're a Republican who didn't like Trump and voted for someone, you know, uh, someone else down the ticket, look forward to maybe the next election cycle or some of the new leadership that is coming up in the party. There's just a lot to look forward to as we're getting into some fresh news and fresh storylines after so much that has been kind of stagnant. Yeah, it's been a long four years for sure. Yep. Well, if you would like to email us your thoughts, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bsteidel. And of course, you can always tweet at or follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. This has been a monster of a week. Thanks for sticking with us in such a news dense week. And we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.